In this episode of 2000 Books, Wharton Business School professor Richard Shell will help you answer two of the most profound questions you can ever ask and answer for yourself. What for me is success and how will I achieve it? Well, hello, hello my ambitious friends and welcome to 2000 Books. Every Monday and Wednesday we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, personal development, and much, much more. And I am your host, Manny Vaya. Richard Shell is a professor at Wharton Business School and a world-renowned negotiation expert. At Wharton, he created the success course to help his world-class MBA students answer two questions that aren't as obvious as they seem. What for me is success and how will I achieve it? Based on that acclaimed course, his book Springboard shows how to assess the hidden influences of family, media, and culture on your beliefs about success. Then it helps you figure out your unique passions and capabilities so you can focus more on what gives meaning and excitement to your life and less on what you're supposed to want. Richard, I'm really excited to have you on the show. So welcome. Thank you, Monty. Great to be here. Thank you. And this book springboard launching your personal search for success tell us your personal story that led to writing this book your travel all the way to this book wow well it's a story that begins when i was in college which was quite a while ago since i'm now 66 uh and it just goes to show that sometimes goals take a while to come to life uh, that i wrote this book at all i'm just glad i in fact lived long enough to write it my college experience was back in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and my father was a general in the Marine Corps, and my grandfathers on both sides had been Army and Navy career officers. And I, in college, I started off with a military career as my goal because, uh, in fact, it had never occurred to me to be anything else but a military officer. So I was on a full scholarship to join the service after college. But as life sometimes uh, happens, uh, the middle of my college career uh, coincided with the escalation of the Vietnam War and the invasion of Cambodia and nationwide protests questioning the purpose of the war and the legitimacy of that war. And so I was called as a 20-year-old to actually confront what it is that I had signed up to do. And that was essentially to go kill Vietnamese people with whom I didn't have any quarrel. So when I came to think about it, I just decided that I couldn't do it. So I resigned the scholarship I was on and I called my dad and told him I was uh, changing my path. And I became a pacifist, which you can imagine was a pretty systematic break from my whole family legacy and at a very young age. So this book really began with that moment where I cut the cord of the life that I had been raised with and began trying to figure out how to live a life that I had some respect for on the question of values. It wasn't, I, I didn't disrespect my family legacy. It just couldn't be mine under those conditions. And so it, it sets you off. When you don't know why you've been doing everything you've been doing for 20 years, it's pretty hard to figure out where you are and it's impossible to figure out what you're going to do next. So in many ways, uh, the journey that kicked off from uh, military officer to pacifist in 1971 really kicked off a 16-year journey of self-discovery for me, um, including you know, working in the ghettos of Washington, D.C. as a social worker, 
traveling around the world to uh, many different places with a backpack, just trying to figure it out. And I ended up in a Buddhist monastery in Sri Lanka and met a wonderful teacher there who sort of launched me on the inward journey and then came to another Buddhist monastery in South Korea and uh, was invited by the Zen master there to become a monk. And you know, all this uh, kind of coming at the time when I still was estranged from my family. So I kind of decided I needed to get my family straight before I could uh, turn uh, my life to a life of meditation. And so I came home and ended up living in my parents' basement when I was 27, 28 uh, years old uh, and getting to know them again. I had left the country with a general and his wife as parents, and I came back home and my dad had retired and I really got to know a mom and a dad at that point. And that was really important to me to heal those wounds and start my own process uh, from the inside out. So, you know, long story short, I looked at my capabilities. I was better at words than math. I went to law school uh, on the strength of my ability to write and think in words. And that led me to being on the faculty at the Wharton School of Business in our legal studies group. I started when I was 37 years old, so pretty late for an academic career to start. But I've been at Wharton ever since, and I've been waiting to write this book ever since. So I'm actually best known in the world as a negotiation expert. I've you know, got a best-selling book in 17 languages on negotiation. And I run workshops here and abroad for you know, the UN, for hostage negotiation uh, schools, as well as business. Uh, but this, this book was always in the background waiting for me to get to a point where I could write it. It started specifically 10 years ago. Uh, I launched a course called the Success Course at Wharton, mainly for undergraduates. And on the strength of the teaching that I was able to do in that course, the basic crystallization of these ideas and the way I write about them in Springboard uh, with the help of my students came into form. And then uh, and then finally, I uh, had a good publisher. The uh, Penguin imprint has been my publisher for uh, over 15 years. And so they were generous enough to print this book for me and to publish it. And so I just got the Chinese edition and the Japanese edition of it last week. So it's now having its little global life, which is very gratifying to me. That's great. Long story, but that's how it came to happen. That's great. And congratulations on getting all the different languages. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing to see a book come out in different languages. You always wonder what the title is in the new language. But I think it's still the same book. That's funny. That's true, though. We have this little fear that maybe it's something that we didn't anticipate the title would be. (laughs) So this book, um, give us like a 10,000 feet overview of the book. What should the reader expect from Springboard. Sure. I mean, I began reading success books in my early 20s after I got out of college and I was on this sort of who am I period of my life, which in the book I call the Odyssey years. And it really did feel like an Odyssey to me. And so I've been a student of the success literature forever and accelerated that, of course, when I began teaching a course about it here 10 years ago. And the one thing that I noticed about all the How to Succeed books is that they they basically say nothing about what success actually means. And they all launch from the premise that you need to use this tool or that tool to succeed. So you find goals on networking, find goals on visualization, you find books on goal setting, you find books on, you know, all the different sort of the strength movement, you know, use your strengths, all the books on how to do it. uh, But no book really 
uh, unless you're willing to read a lot of philosophy, which most people aren't these days, on what success means and how different that can be for each person. So the first half of the book asks the question, what do you mean by success? And there are four chapters that go through some typical answers to that question that are implicit in our culture in many families, fame, fortune, professional status, even the concept of meaningful work, which is the kind of thing that you hear from many graduation speakers and in college graduation ceremonies where they say, follow your passion as the answer to that question. I think that's just another answer. It may not be the right answer for everybody. So I have these chapters at the beginning, the first half, and they have assessments and diagnostics and quizzes and mind games to try to help you assess your actual values about what success means to you and how different it might be or how similar it might be to what your family embraced. Because, uh, of course, in my case, I had this complete rupture with my own family over what a successful life was supposed to look like. And so I had to sort of do it on my own. But in the, in the first half of the book, I try to help people do it without having to take 17 years to figure it out. And, you know, that gives you a chance to kick back and look at what your goals are in, inside and outside. When you look at the definition of success, you basically end up with two points of view. One is internal happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment. The other is external achievement, effect on the world, impact on others, and reputation and respect. So those two things are seldom achieved a 100% at the same time, both. So I think it calls on you to assess what lights your fires, the internal and the external. And I have some thoughts on that. But then the second half of the book uh, is with some definition of success in mind, whether it's centered on family or whether it's centered on career, whether it's centered on helping others or whatever it might be, how do you achieve it? And so in that half of the book, I actually try to provide a gateway to all this vast literature that is out there where everybody thinks they found the one true answer on how to succeed. So I have a chapter on uh, finding your capabilities that are unique. I have a chapter on uh, the importance of long-term goals. I have a chapter on the social aspects of success. But again, rather than me saying, here's the one true path, uh, you follow me, I give people assessments and avenues into uh, why this particular approach to achieving success may or may not be the optimal one for them. Just as an example, goal setting, which is about as common a how to succeed tool as there is. I'm very fond of setting goals myself, but I've taught the course here to some very smart and high-powered students for 10 years. I mean, the Wharton School is not a picnic to get into, and there are a lot of smart people that end up taking my course. And what I found is that for some people, setting goals is the worst possible thing they can do because they already set 25 goals a day. They have an app on their iPhone for setting goals. Their day is filled with check boxes, goals, 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 goals. So for them to read a book on how to set goals or to set more goals is the worst thing. They ought to be reading books on how to set fewer goals or no goals and let themselves you know, reflect on who they are a bit before they just lose their entire life checking boxes on what they think they ought to do next, really based on no more self-reflection than that. Those are the things other people have provided for them to think about. So goal setting is good advice for people who need to be focused on that and more intentional. It's bad advice for people who are obsessive goal setters and basically running away from some of the hardest questions because their goal setting gives them something to do instead of thinking about those questions. 
So the second half of the book is designed to give people a more thoughtful way to access the how to succeed literature. So that's it. What do you mean by success? Part one, how do you achieve it? Part two, but emphasis on how do you achieve it, not how does one achieve it or how is it achieved. This is great and makes so much sense, the idea that we're all different in so many ways and we shouldn't have one definition of success. We shouldn't have this one global idea of success. When we do that, when we follow our parents' dream of what they consider success for us or we follow the society's rules of what they consider success for us, it can get really lonely deep inside of ourselves. Well, I'll tell you the real sign of that is someone, I, I'll tell you a story. I had, I taught a, a course on success for 300 global bankers. They were having a, a meeting here in, in at the University of Pennsylvania, and I was asked to run a three-hour workshop for them. And so it's a huge audience to deal with this kind of subject matter. But one of the concepts I used in the talk was success autopilot. And success autopilot is you're running at full steam, achieving other people's goals. <laughs> and how do you recognize that? A very good way to recognize that is you strive like crazy to achieve, a, say, a promotion at work. Then you get it and you feel empty. You feel no satisfaction. You wonder why you did it. You have a kind of a lost feeling. And a banker raised his hand in the back of the, this auditorium at this point, and they gave him the mic. And he said, Richard, I understand exactly what you just said. I've been working for three years to get a promotion at my bank, and I achieved it two months ago. I got everyone congratulated me and my family at a party. And he said, but the truth of the matter is, as I was sitting here this morning, I realized I have no idea why I wanted it. And I felt nothing when I got it. <laughs> and here's a guy who's 45 years old, very successful from an outward standpoint. But he had the realization must have been very strong for him because he stood up in front of 299 other bankers and confessed that his goals had not been his own. You know, I consider that one of the most important moments anyone can have is no matter where they are. Or what they're doing, they recognize that, that they've been running on success autopilot. And it's a scary experience. But I told you I spent this time in a Buddhist monastery. And I consider that a kind of awakening. It's a, in the Buddhism, awakening means uh, something quite different. It's a very religious term, and it relates to awakening to role of, of the mind in the creation of reality and selflessness of experience. But in my iteration of this book and these materials, I think awakening is that you have not taken responsibility for using your life in the best possible way. And instead, you've been dancing to the dreams of your parents or your culture. And it's not your dream if it's not your world, you're not your values, then, you know, it's never too late to wake up because, you know, the worst case scenario is you don't wake up until you're just about ready to die. And you kind of go, what was that all about? And then yeah. you don't have time to fix it. So I think it's important stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. I'm not sure if you've come across I have, that. I've, I've encountered that book. Yeah. Yeah. And the first one always is the fact that I wish I had lived my own life, my own version of what I wanted to do rather than live someone else's dream. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that, you know, that's why I think it's so important and powerful not to be too afraid. Because I think fear is a really big barrier to this. People are afraid to... Disappoint. Well, I mean, it's a little bit like you've been driving in a car and you wake up to the fact that you have never been driving it. You've been in the passenger seat. And then you go, well, wow, I've let all this time pass and someone else has been deciding where we're going. And 
you know, driving is a scary thing the first time you do it. You don't know what to do first and it feels awkward and it could be dangerous. And But it's something you can get better at with practice. I think it's it's always a good idea to, you know, take over the wheel uh, of your own life. Wow. Yes, absolutely. That's a that's a very powerful metaphor because if someone else was driving your car, you weren't really going on a trip that you decided to go on. Instead of going on a trip along the coast in California, you were probably somewhere in the Midwest. Well, maybe you were on a trip that was maximizing your safety. And uh, so someone who loves you uh, drove you uh, in a way that made sure you took no risk. So it's totally understandable. It's uh, your role to, to stand up for whatever the life it is that you want to live. And the people that love you will let you do that if they love you. So That's true. That's true. Wow. Um, so Richard, um, what would be the three most important takeaways or ideas, three most important things we want to take away from this book? Well, in some ways, we've, we've sort of touched on them already, because I think the most important thing is that it's your responsibility to define success for yourself, mm -hmm. and that you can choose not to do it. It's going to lead you to more interesting places than if you choose to resign yourself to letting others define it for you or letting the culture define it for you. I think it's the case that the work of defining success, I mean, I, in my course, for example, at the end of the course, I don't expect my students to have actually defined success for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. I try to teach them how to think about how to do it so that they recognize where the definition is going to come from. It's going to come from inside, not outside. Although inside and outside are related, there is no way to disaggregate inside and outside. But at least you get to kind of realize where your values are coming from. Do you embrace them? Do you reject them? Do you want to modify them? What do you think about them? So you have a stance. And then you learn to think about uh, what parts of uh, those values are so deeply connected to your identity. It could be your family or it could be your religion. That try to pull away from it would be kind of self-destructive. And so you choose to make your peace with that because the value of embracing it is so much higher than the cost of breaking with it. You know, that's a pretty important thing to realize. I have students who realize that, you know, their religion, I had a student in the class just had finished in May who was Hindu mm -hmm. and who had rejected Hinduism. His parents were devout Hindus, and he was here at the University of Pennsylvania, and he had spent his, you know, late teenage years, college years, you know, rejecting all of what his family stood for in terms of Hindu values and religion and the rituals and all the rest of it, and had a very philosophical kind of attitude and very rational attitude. As we got into the course, and he began thinking about these questions and himself, the end of the course, he actually put down as one of his goals to reacquaint himself with Hinduism, mm -hmm. because he, was, he realized he was missing a tremendous amount of strength that comes from an, a genuinely deep and ancient philosophy that comes from genuinely meaningful connections to certain rituals, and he might understand his family better. And that was something that he felt was very important. So one of the things I tell my students is very, very often uh, the future resides in your own past. And you find yourself at a juncture in life, whether it's after college or whether you're changing jobs or whether you're, you know, have to change a job or you're facing retirement, whatever the stop off place is, you think, oh, well, now it's time for me to make it all up and start over. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. Everything that you will be has already been given to you. It's already been sent to you in some message based on your childhood or, or some aspect of, of emotional life when you were younger. 
And it's really just a question of going back and reconnecting mm-hmm. to the appropriate place in your past where you can continue the thread that was started there, but that got cut off by something. Yeah. So this connects to to me one of the big ideas of the book, which is how, you know, not only understanding our own definition of success, but how will I achieve it? What are the individual talents and passions and capabilities and that I bring that will make success a possibility for myself, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, example, a student in the class uh, a couple of years ago, we did this sort of think back to what really got you excited as a child. And she realized that what really got her excited more than almost anything was building models. I mean, her parents gave her you know, kits and stuff. And she just went nuts building little models and then building more complicated models. And then, you know, uh, you know, so the Einstein store of models and she could knock them all off. And she realized that what was actually going on in her life at college and what she was thinking about doing after college was also building models, uh, financial models, more complicated computer models, but still models. And So that was a connection that gave her a sense of assurance that she was on the right track, even though she hadn't realized it, that she was following through on this thread of the way her mind worked and the kind of puzzle she liked to solve. Mm -hmm. So when you think back and connect that, sometimes it doesn't mean you have to change anything. It just gives you a lot more confidence that you're, you're on a good path to using yourself, your unique mindset in a way that's gonna deliver a lot of value no matter what you turn to turn to do it. I mean, she could end up being uh, someone who builds climate change models and not financial models for Wall Street. Uh, That will, of course, be the way she applies her talents. But but the fact that she likes to solve these very, very, very complicated puzzles in abstract ways is the thing that she will always have. Mm. Yeah, that's as you said, that's our success is our future lies in the past. Yeah, our, our future lies in, in reconnecting to some part of our past. Mm-hmm. That there was a, there's, I just read a book. There's a, there's a, a wonderful uh, field called evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. The essence of it is a model of the brain and the mind that is the opposite of what economics. The model for economics is sort of um, uh, the mind is like this block of marble that Michelangelo would have uh, confronted. And the economist's view is you chip away at it until you get to the essence of human nature. And then you build all of your assumptions around this essence of human nature and predict what humans are going to do and what society is going to do, and what the economy is going to do. And the essence of human nature as they see it is self-interest. Uh, and so their models are all built on maximizing self-interest. And evolutionary psychology says, no, 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 that's not the way it is. The way it is, is um, the mind and the brain are like uh, bits of clay that have been patched together over millennia of evolution, just like uh, the human hand is a product of evolution. Mm. And over those time periods, these different parts of the brain have been added in response to evolutionary pressures to survive so the species will survive. And so in many ways, the brain is this, and the mind is this very complicated uh, series of subroutines that is designed to uh, respond to aspects of reality, of the outside world and other social creatures so that we survive. And so I think as a child grows, they operate, they activate these different parts of their brains 
that are designed and are genetically robust to activate a social subroutine or activate a creative subroutine or activate a solve complex puzzles uh, subroutine or activate a sex drive or a theory of mind so you can understand other people better. There are all these different things. And it's almost as if we have that many different selves mm. that instead of one little guy sitting in there, you know, pulling uh, levers and blowing whistles and summoning this and directing that, you have to think of, of, of yourself as some a, a, a very complex and wonderful being that's to some extent going to change depending on what environment you're in and what challenges are posed to you from the outside. Hmm. And I think when you're a child, you, you, are the, you are the most innocent responder to the world you will ever be. So whatever the aptitudes are that are in there that are your unique combination, when you're a kid, you're not filtering them. You're not saying, well, will mommy, you know, think I'm a good person or a bad person if I, you know, um, you know, play guns around the house or something. You just want to play and that's what you try to do. And if you, if you go back to those impulses, you very often find what evolution gave you, the individual, as a unique combination of these abilities and aptitudes and capabilities and potentials that you can use to motivate yourself and to to get uh, find yourself in ways where you can become more and more excellent because you're using things that are in there instead of things that are supposed to be there or things that someone told you were there. They're the things that are actually in there. Mm. So I think it's the chances of you discovering some new aspect of yourself when you're 40 that wasn't already apparent at some point in your youth are pretty small. Yeah, this is this is really great. And the other idea that I thought was really, really awesome in your book was the idea of happiness. And not just the traditional way of thinking about happiness, but you talk about writing it up and figuring out the concrete things that make up your happiness. So talk to us a little more about that part sure. of the book. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, I, I'm at the University of Pennsylvania, and we're lucky enough to have the Center for Positive Psychology, which has been studying happiness for 20 years. Marty Seligman has written a number of great books, mm -hmm. Authentic Happiness. And all I'm kinds. a big fan of Martin Seligman's work. So Yeah. And uh, we're about to hear, actually, I'll, I'll give you a tip. Um, in the next six months or so, uh, Angela Duckworth, who's um, also in the Positive Psychology Group here, is going to be publishing a book that's going to make a huge splash. Uh, and her work is on achievement, so not not happiness. It's on uh, self discipline and uh, is it on grit? It's on grit. Yeah, yeah. And so she's in the middle of uh, writing it right now. I'm going to have lunch with her in a couple of weeks, actually, to talk about a draft that um, she's working on. She she was in my first success class. Wow. Uh, yeah, I I read. I mean, I listened to her TED talk. It's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and uh, it's she's, all uh, about the great part of the equation. Yeah, she's she's um, she was a PhD student ten years ago, and and uh, I met her um, as she was one of my students. But the oh. the but that she's she's about the outside part. Uh, she's mm -hmm. about achievement, mm -hmm. and the question you asked about happiness, which is much more Marty's um, uh, sort of uh, bailiwick, in the. I, I, this is going to sound kind of funny, but I'm not a big fan of happiness personally. Mm. Um, and so I, and I partly it's because I think it's overrated by the culture um, and, and it's undefined by the culture. So we use this word because Thomas Jefferson put it in the declaration of independence and he said, we all have the right to pursue it, but he didn't define it anywhere. And if you look at Jefferson's life, 
he lived a very, very spare, stoic kind of life. Uh, very, you know, much more, not, not somebody you would think of as like, you know, smiley face happy. Um, hmm. And so I think if you're going to put your money on happiness as a strong aspect of your success, then I think just like success is poorly defined, and so the tr- challenge is to find it, I think you have to define happiness. And, mm. and the research has discovered three different definitions of a kind of happiness you can measure. Uh, that doesn't, of course, exhaust the definitions of what it could be. It just exhausts what social science can tell us about it. But first is momentary happiness, which is sort of positive moods. Um, you're happy because you're eating an ice cream cone and it's your favorite flavor. You're happy because you see your, uh, your parents and you love them and you haven't seen them for a while. You're happy because you're at the beach and it's a beautiful day. Uh, moments that come and emotions that follow that are positive and a life without any of those is certainly a very, uh, you know, uh, a life I wouldn't wish on anyone. But mm-hmm. it's not the life, if all you're pursuing is a life of positive moods, then I think what you'll end up doing is taking a lot of drugs because positive moods cannot be sustained unless you take drugs. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that's a pretty self-destructive way to view your precious time on earth. So, so that's, that's, that's path one is momentary happiness and maximizing that, probably not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, optimizing it, sure. Uh, that's a balance of something. Second form of happiness, more of an evaluation or a cognition, a thought, which is a positive thought about a glop of time. Uh, I was happy when I lived in San Francisco, or I was happy when I was in college. And when you measure happiness that way, it's just a great big, um, uh, I don't know, it doesn't, it's very easy to manipulate. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most people can have those assessments easily manipulated by just having a peak experience during this whole college period. They were miserable all of college, but they had one amazing happy moment. So, you know, years later, they look back, that's all they focus on is the one amazing happy moment. But actually, they were three three years and 364 days of misery. That's a <laughs> funny way of defining happiness. Uh, and, you know, so that seems a little weak. And then the third kind is, I think, a, a much more mysterious kind. I call it deep happiness in the book. But that's, that's sort of a, an experience of connection. You're on the beach. It's early in the morning. You see the sunrise. You feel oneness with nature. You're in awe of the universe and your place in it. And you're just washed for a brief moment with this sense of, um, of connected, uh, of endless love, of, of, uh, of selflessness. And that's wonderful. But it's not something I don't think you can seek. I think it's something you have to be awake for. And you can create better conditions of being awake so that when it happens, you're there for it. But it's not something you design a life and say, I'm going to maximize deep happiness for myself. Because mm-hmm. I was in a monastery. I, I was invited to be a monk. And I can tell you, that's not the, 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 the program of being a Buddhist monk is not to maximize deep happiness. The program is to achieve enlightenment. And the program of achieving enlightenment involves a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of uh, agony and effort and doubt and fear. And uh, it's not just uh, let's go create the conditions for deep happiness and then we'll just buzz for the rest of our lives. So 
So even that can be a kind of false goal if you think that you can create it. I think you just have to be there when it when it happens. It's a gift. There's no doubt about it. Hawthorne once said uh, that this kind of happiness is like a butterfly. If you try to catch it, it often mm-hmm. gets away. But if you sit still, it may come down and rest on your shoulder. Yeah. Are we saying that happiness, like the pursuit of happiness is a worthy ideal, it's a worthy goal, but at the same time, you know, all these different variants of happiness, the different ways of looking at happiness, they're still um, maybe incomplete in their own ways. And part of a lot of our lives will be lived without being happy in the moment or in that glob of time. And we have to embrace that reality that that is the way it is, and we have to be okay with that being the truth of our lives. Well, that may be the way you define happiness. Uh, Mm. I mean, I tell a story in the book about somebody I call the wise angel. It was a workman who came into a seminar on happiness (laughs) at the Wharton School, and he was working on uh, uh, a construction project somewhere outside at the university, and he sort of wandered into the seminar. And the research was on the relationship between money and happiness. You know, how happy do people get with more money? How happy are people in rich countries or poor countries and all that? And at the end of this seminar, he raised his hand and he said, I don't know what you guys are talking about in here. He said, as far as I can tell, happiness is just three things. Good health, meaningful work, and love. You have that, you're happy. And... Of course, all the academics were shocked and, and into silence. They had no idea how to respond to this guy. But he had told the truth for himself. And I thought the thing I took away from that moment was this is a man who's earned the right to have its definition. I, I mean, for me, I don't know if you don't control love in your life. If, if love departs, does that mean you can never be happy again? I don't think so. If, if your work is not meaningful, but your work outside work is meaningful, then maybe that's okay. You can be happy. Uh, and good health is not something we always control either. And sometimes you end up with bad health or good health or an accident, but people become happy again. So, so he, you know, he wasn't necessarily completely 100% correct, but he had thought about it enough to set, tell himself, if those three things are in my life, then I am in a, and I'm not happy, then there's something wrong with me. That is a worthy definition for me. So, um, so I think that's what I challenge people to do is not, not, not have an answer for anyone else, but to have one for themselves that is a sort of uh, benchmark for them. They, they, they can look to as a sort of, yeah, this is, this is what I mean by happiness. Hmm. And now you, I've been, I've been I've been in a lot of discussions and I've been myself in a place where I often say, when I achieve this, when I get there, when I achieve this goal, then I'll be happy. And it's always a fleeting thing, but it's still something that I believe that when that happens, I'll definitely be happy or I'll be better off or I'll be... Now, how... When you when we're talking about well, if I can define my success, define my definite, if I put a definition of happiness, saying if this this and this were to happen, then I'd be happy. Is that the right way to even define or go about defining it? How can I make sure that I'm not defining it the wrong way? Well, uh, first of all, your definition will change. So yeah. So uh, when you're 75, you'll have a different definition. So 
the but you know just listening to you talk what i hear is you've got a, a very strong um uh, sort of reward achievement system set up in your head that mm-hmm. is got this if then characteristic to it and it keeps you motivated and um and it probably does bring you some satisfaction and as long as you have perspective on it and you recognize that as sort of part of your um, life process is that you need goals that you can point to and go, you know, it's like a little mouse in a maze. You know, if I do this, I'll get the cheese. And that's a happy thought. So off you go. And then you get the cheese. And you have a nice little moment where the cheese feels good and then or tastes good. And then as long as you know that that's going to be over uh, and then it's going to start over and you're going to run the same thing again uh, and you're okay with that then I think it's fine. It's only when you think that there really is um, this happiness that's something other than what we've already talked about. It's, uh, you know, like uh, enlightenment for the Buddha. You know, it's mm-hmm. nirvana that uh, you're going to get by doing whatever it is you're doing. Because, you know, the Buddha, the Buddha spent a good long time looking for nirvana. And it was pretty hard to achieve. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think when he achieved it, he he got it. I, I'm I'm pretty sure he got it. But it happens very rarely in human history that anyone gets it. Um, so um, so I think I think as long as you realize that the, the Nirvana thing is an illusion, uh, then you'll probably be all right. And and your process will change. You know, have you got a family? No. Okay. So there you go. Uh, if you if you find yourself with a family, your whole system's going to change. <laughs> And I expect that to happen. That's true. Well, well, the thing that confounds me a lot, and I think uh, I'm talking for myself here now, is I find myself in a situation where I'll say, well, when I achieve this, I'll be happy. But the the counter to that that sticks is that I cannot be happy until I achieve that because somehow we associate, or I associate the idea of being dissatisfied with being unhappy as well as dissatisfied and ha- somehow feeling that being dissatisfied will propel me towards my goal. Well, being dissatisfied is good. I mean, I, I think that's, a, that's the first place where you wake up. You're dissatisfied. <laughs> uh, but again, if it's you, the recognizing the cycles is the difference between simply having a psychological condition of dissatisfaction and using your dissatisfaction to power you toward things that you actually value. Wow. Yeah, this makes a lot more sense now. But this is, it's almost like a meditation, having that awareness that you are not just being driven by your thought. I mean, uh, in meditation, we talk about just knowing you're, tr- you're running different trains of thoughts rather than just being the purveyor of the thoughts all the time and never having that distance and awareness. Right. To, to see where you what all thoughts you're thinking right yeah yeah wow. I think I think I think these things are all connected it certainly seems so to me but of course I was a student of Buddhism so it's not a coincidence that yeah. I have this point of view yeah and so am I but at the same time I mean oh, if, even if you try to keep religion out of this equation it still makes a lot of sense the fact that we're we're becoming aware we're, it's almost like a meta awareness of where we are in this equation. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
so so <laughs> this is this is so much fun richard um if we were to tie this discussion all together and give our listeners maybe three specific action items or homework or pieces of guidance what what would you what would you say you know i thought about you you said you were going to answer this question and i was thinking about it and it's a tough it's a very tough question <laughs> given what it is we just talked about because i have a strong feeling that for each of your listeners the steps would be different um and i mean i would say the um do do what you must to wake up, mm -hmm. uh, that is, uh, recognize dissatisfactions. Don't don't put them away in a and and deny them. Uh, examine them uh, and recognize that this journey is 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 a very difficult one. It's not a journey to happiness. It's a journey through effort to someplace, uh, and the the effort is. The same kind of effort if you were training to, you know, learn a new sport or training to learn a new way of using your mind. It's a you have to to uh, it's training in self-respect, essentially uh, mm -hmm. respecting the values you have, respecting your life story, respecting the um, aspiration to use the precious time you have on Earth to some good effect. And so. Um, so do what you must to achieve the self-discipline to stick with this question. Um, and then I guess the third thing is be compassionate, be self-compassionate, um, and uh, be willing to change. To, uh, for example, uh, uh, let love into your life. Uh, don't try to control everything. Um, you know, be open to the moment of deep happiness that's just sitting there in front of you, but you're too busy checking off your goals to recognize that probably the most powerful experience of deep happiness that you could ever have is in the moment of silence that you might achieve by putting your goal list to the side. Um, you know, John Lennon uh, wrote a song once, uh, and uh, the line in it is, life is what happens when you're making other plans. <laughs> that's true and um and so i'd say you know uh do what you must do to wake up uh recognize that it's effort and not um instant gratification and then uh be self-compassionate uh when you're tired rest uh, when you're um when you're emotionally upset uh let let it let the tempest pass <laughs> mm -hmm. uh and and it's amazing, I think, once you treat life as something that's happening every day instead of something that's going to happen once you achieve this or that and the other, um, that the light, this is my, I'll, I'll close with a quote. How about that? Mm -hmm. Sure. At the very, very front of the book, in the, uh, in the, before even the foreword, I quote the I Ching, which is a Chinese book of wisdom that was written like 6,000 years ago. And um, it's for the, the chapter in that book called Nourishment. And it says, this is what it says. It is only when we have the courage to face things exactly as they are, without any self-deception or illusion, that a light will develop out of events by which the path to success may be recognized. Wow. And I think if you consider that uh, sentence, 
in all its dimensions, I think that's probably the most important thing of all. Yeah. That one is profound. What book did you say was it from? It's from the I Ching, the Book of Changes. It's a an ancient uh, book of wisdom from the Chinese culture. Uh, it's uh, the the most. It's written in a mil. You know, if you go to any New Age bookstore, you'll find many copies of the I Ching. It's it's uh, the capital letter I, mm-hmm. and then a second word Ching, capital C H I N G. Okay. And the translation that I just quoted from is uh, from the Princeton University Press edition of the I Ching. Uh, and uh, it's a wonderful book. I used it a lot. I still use it. Uh, it's a way of, of uh, sort of asking questions of a book of wisdom, and you use coins, and then the coins align themselves a certain way, and then that prompts you to read a certain chapter, uh, and then you can reflect on it. Got it. I'm going to look it up today and get on it. Okay. All right. I recommend <laughs> and, it to your readers after they get a copy of Springboard. So. Of course. Of course. Uh, definitely. Uh, and uh, uh, just as you said that, I wanted to make sure our readers have another action item, which is something I did as well. It's part of your book, which is the six lives exercise. It's an absolute requirement, I would say, if you're going to get into this book, because it really helps you make some... <laughs> very important distinctions in yourself as to what you value most and uh, the exercise can also be found online on your website and we'll have it on the show notes there as well great all right well i appreciate it, Monty. it's been a lot of fun talking with you and i appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts with you and your uh, and your listeners absolutely richard thank you very much for taking the time and bringing this energy into this call um, i am very appreciative of that good all right take care Well, last month was really exciting because I got to talk to a lot of you one-on-one. I got to understand your challenges and your frustrations in your entrepreneurial journey. And a lot of you got back to me after the call saying that you applied the advice you got from me and it helped you out tremendously. And that to me is one of the most rewarding things for me, knowing that I was able to help you move forward. So even though my initial plan was to just do this for one month, given the fun I had and given your overwhelming response and request, I have opened up my Thursdays for this month as well. So I'll do this again. I will talk to you, listen to you, answer any and all business questions you may have and take in any suggestions you have for us, for the podcast, for the YouTube channel, for our products. So if you would like to talk to me, just schedule a free 30-minute chat with me at 2000books.com slash discuss or text the word discuss to 44222 and we will get talking, you and I. Now, I'm really excited about this because it will really give me the opportunity to get to know you, understand you, and serve you better. By the way, I want to be doubly clear that this is not a sales call. I will not pitch anything to you, and I hope you won't sell anything to me either, okay? So let's just talk like friends. Deal? All right. So I'm only doing this for Thursdays, and there are only four Thursdays this month. So get a time slot before they're all gone. Just head on over to 2000books.com slash discus or text the word discus to 44222 and schedule a time that is convenient for you. And now I'm really looking forward to talking with you. So let's do this. So a lot of you have asked me how I consume seven books a week. Well, I do read a lot, but I also listen to audiobooks when I'm driving, when I'm working out, when I'm running errands, when I'm out running. It's such a great use of my time. And not only that, I listen to the books at three times the normal speed. 
Yeah, it's 3x. So I consume a six-hour-long book in two hours flat. I just love Audible for that. And I've been using it for years now. And right now, you can give Audible a try by signing up for a free trial membership and get any audiobook in their library for free. And if you don't like it, just cancel the trial membership and you won't be charged anything. However, you still get to keep the audiobook forever for free. So to avail this offer, just head on over to 2000books.com slash free. That's 2000books.com slash F-R-E-E free. Well, until next time, my ambitious friends, go out and live a courageous life.